Hey, hey, everyone. This is Dr. Travis Stork. Thank you all so much for tuning in. So Dr. Phil is my guest today. And a little background, we actually taped this episode before the coronavirus outbreak was at the level it is currently at. And believe it or not, Dr. Phil was meant to be my inaugural guest, but of course, so much has changed in the last few weeks that I decided to start the podcast early and start focusing on the coronavirus and how it's impacting our lives, not only our health, um, but everything else as well in life, our relationships, our bank accounts. But today's episode, even though we taped it a little bit before we realized how bad this was potentially going to get, it is as salient today as it was when we taped it recently. And what I would say about Dr. Phil is he's the kind of guy you want to sit down with and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, regardless of whether or not it's being recorded. A lot of lessons in today's episode, talking a lot about resiliency and also avoiding cynicism, which I think is a great thing to talk about during this particular time. And we also touch upon the 24-7 news cycle and how you have to compartmentalize and take breaks He gives me some wonderful advice about parenting, about, quite frankly, approaching life, and I think he's always been really good at that. But one of the most salient things he said, you can either spend your day dealing with problems or spend your day dealing with solutions. And that is a profound statement. And I think one that we are all struggling with right now a little bit because there feel it feels like there are so many problems and so few solutions. But the reality is it only feels like there are so many problems if we choose to focus on the problems rather than the solutions. And of course, because we're still in this state of so many unknowns, still a lot of panic out there, just quickly focusing on solutions at the individual level. Just being smart continues to be our best defense, and that is religious hand-washing, don't touch your face, try to socially distance yourself, but also take breaks mentally to make sure that you are maintaining a healthy mental headspace because your kids, and that's what we talk about a lot in this episode, is kids and how parenting can affect kids. Think a lot about how your actions right now may be affecting your kids who are modeling their behavior after you. Uh, If you're watching the news cycle 24-7, because a lot of us are primarily stuck at home, just know your kids are watching. And that can be a little bit overwhelming for your kids. And something that Dr. Phil talks about in this episode is that on 9-11 back in the day, when kids saw those buildings crumbling to the ground in New York City, they thought that Every building in America was crumbling to the ground. So when a kid sees this news cycle or the these dire predictions, kids start to believe that the world might be coming to an end. So just be aware of that as you listen to this podcast. So many great lessons, regardless of the times that um, we're living in. But uh, Dr. Phil has become a, a good friend and... I'll tell you what, there's a reason why he's so successful. He has so much wonderful advice. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here. But I I figured the most salient topic that I was going to pick your brain on 
is you're known as Dr. Phil, (laughs) but you were a dad first. And since you're here and since I am having a boy in June and uh, (laughs) I know your sons well, Jordan and Jay. You do. you, You raise them well. So. I'm picking your brain. I need I need to know what I'm doing here. I need to know. I'm not worried about the early parts of parenting. And, and <clears throat> people ask, are you worried about changing diapers? No. And, and I'm not worried about, as a doc, obviously I'm aware of kids and the things to look out for from that perspective. But I'm starting to get nervous about raising a son in today's world. So how was your relationship with your dad? My dad traveled a lot. So my dad sold, my dad was a salesman and sold feed Mm -hmm. and he was always on the road. So, you know, my dad, my dad was mainly with me on the weekends and, you know, I just respected the heck out of him. I I learned from my dad more from watching him than anything else. So that was how I, you know, that's how I grew up. I grew up watching my dad and learned how to hopefully become a man just from watching him. And I I think he was a great role model in that way. He, you know, he always came through. He always did what he said he was going to do. And hopefully it worked with me. Well, you know, for me, my dad was not what I would call a good role model. (laughs) It was not a good parental legacy passed on uh, because he was a really bad alcoholic my entire life until like my last two years when he kind of got sober and went back to the Dallas Theological Seminary and got his Master's of Divinity and all that. But the entire time I was growing up, he was a raging alcoholic. And so as I was growing up, there was none of this hunting, fishing, camping, not one day in my life did I ever spend in the woods with my dad or at a stream fishing or hunting or anything like that. So when I had boys, I had to make a decision about, okay, look, I can't just expose them to what I know because my dad didn't expose me to any of that stuff. So I had to make a conscious decision that I was going to expose them to everything and let them pick what they really liked. I mean, from a very early age, because seriously, I never spent one minute with my dad fishing. So I resolved to take both of my boys fishing. I took both of my boys hunting. I took both of my boys camping. I took, I mean, I just did everything with them that was not done with me. And not very well, because I, <laughs> I didn't know how to do it. Uh, but I thought, I owe it to them to expose it to them so they can choose what they want to do. Do you think that due to your upbringing, you've accomplished a lot, obviously, through your life. Do you think that you were forced to develop your own resiliency? And in today's society where I think – Parents are very judgmental of one another. There's helicopter parenting. I I think a lot about how you create resiliency while also being a great parent, but not over-parenting. And I think you're a great example of someone who clearly grew up without the role models, and yet you found your way. Yeah. And, you know, you, you always worry because 
kids that grow up in an affluent home, we all know the stereotypical stories. You know, the the kids of affluent parents are worthless, right? They don't. They're entitled. They don't have a good work ethic. They, you know, they just don't do well. And you know my boys, and I both do. of them are hardworking. They, I, I, I give them both credit. Jay's the hardest working. I mean, he's got more irons in the fire than you can shake a stick at. And Jordan, uh, he's in Europe on tour right now. He just works, 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 works. And I, I I'll say this. <clears throat> you know, I wrote a book, gosh, I don't know how many years ago now, Self Matters. And in it, I said, during our lives, we have 10 defining moments, make seven critical choices, and encounter five pivotal people that in, if you break down everybody's life by the time they're in their 40s, they will have 10, 7, and 5. 10 defining moments have made seven critical choices and met five pivotal people. And the five pivotal people might be negative people. They might be positive people. Mm -hmm. Like you may have been a young girl that was molested by an uncle for eight years during your childhood. He might be on their list of pivotal people because they impacted that young girl so badly that it changed her adjustment, her self-esteem, her sexuality, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So that was a pivotal person. And I look back and I I said my dad was a bad alcoholic and never took me doing that stuff. He was a pivotal person in my life, both negative and positive. Negative in all that drunken, domestic violence, chaos, turmoil was terrible. He was also the hardest working person I've ever met in my life even to this day. He was the hardest working person. So I got a tremendous work ethic Mm -hmm. from him because I saw what he did. And he was a tremendous athlete growing up. I mean, he played four years of football, Division One, And so I, I got those things from him. So he was on the pivotal person list, both positive and negative. And I, I, I think that it caused me to be resilient and self-reliant, I faced early on, whatever I turn out to be, I'm going to have to choose myself early on. And you know, I can remember even being, uh, it was seventh, eighth grade. We lived in Oklahoma City, and I had three sisters, and I was the only boy. So I had my own room in this little house we lived in. I'd say room, it was maybe six by eight. Most people would call it a closet, but it did have a window. And I remember then I came and went through the window. I didn't go through the front door and down the hall to my room. When I got home from school or wherever, I went in my bedroom window. I stayed in that room. When it came time to leave, I went out the bedroom window and went where I was going. It was I became that self-reliant. I didn't even go through the house because I didn't want to be in that turmoil so much because it was yelling, screaming, fighting, violent. So you just learn to rely on yourself. So how do you teach self-reliance 
in hopefully a more positive way. And maybe what I'm asking is, how do you protect your kids? And I'm already picturing trying to parent my son. How do you protect them without overprotecting them so that they can become self-reliant, but in, uh, you know, hopefully a, a way that doesn't resemble your upbringing? Yeah. Well, and, yeah, because I don't recommend that. No, for anybody. that does not sound <laughs> like the right That's path That's not the way to, to get there. Um, but, you know, I, I think we make attributions. We, we make self-attributions the same way we make attributions to other people. Like, let's say you've got, let's say you work in an office and there's somebody there that they just show up every day, 15 minutes early, they make the coffee, turn on the lights, get everything organized. They've not been absent four years. Every day they've been there. You, you make attributions to them, reliable, responsible, dependable, buttoned up. You, based on what you observe, you you attribute those traits and qualities to them based on your observation and experience of them. We do exactly the same thing. People talk about self-image and self-esteem, but they don't ever really break that down to what it means and how we come to that. And we do it the same way we form opinions of other people. We observe ourselves and what we do. That's why I say overindulgence is a terrible thing to do with a child because if you don't let that child crawl up those stairs, they don't observe themselves crawl up the stairs. And if they do, they go, wow, I just did that. Mm -hmm. If you don't let them work that puzzle, even though it's only got four pieces <laughs> because they're one, they don't get the satisfaction of saying, wow, I mastered that puzzle. Um, you have to let them do certain things, even if you're a safety net they don't know is there. Um, like with Jay, for example, um, when he was 10 years old, he used to want to go to the Mavericks game in Dallas. So I'd say, okay, we would pull up and I would say, okay, here's 200 bucks and I want you to get two seats in the lower bowl somewhere down here, and you get to keep whatever you don't spend. Now, those tickets are going to be like 200 bucks a piece. That's what the scalpers are going to ask standing out on the sidewalk. They're out there, got two, I got like two, got idea. two. And I would put him out and give him the money and say, you want to spend 100 a ticket? Then great. You got nothing left. If you can't buy two tickets for 200, then we'll get back in the car and go home. It's totally up to you. Now, I would then get where I could keep my eye on him, <laughs> you know, because I don't want somebody to roll him for 200 bucks. <laughs> uh, but I'm watching him, and, and, you know, he would go up and somebody would say, Yeah, you know, 200 bucks a piece. Uh, I've only got 200. Well, okay, get away from me, kid, you know, and then he'd, and really by the third time, we're going up there. I'd pull him up and say, okay, hop out. And he said, ah, too early. So what do you mean? He said, those tickets are going to get real cheap about the time they do the tip-off. So, so he learned. He starts learning. And so pretty soon he'd come back, all right, got two tickets and 50 bucks. Let's go. I mean, he learned by doing. And I kept my eye on him, but he was out there. And sometimes he would wait until middle of the first quarter. 
And he'd say, all right, got him for 25 <laughs> bucks a brilliant. piece. I, love I got it. 150 bucks in my pocket. Let's go, <laughs> sucker. <laughs> I love that. So, uh, you know, but he observed himself do that. And to this day, you you know him to know he's a negotiator. Oh, he, he's he, really good at his job. He puts things together and, and um, you know, later in life, four or five years later, he would be sitting in his bed and get out the classified ads and go through them and just call people and negotiate for stuff. He didn't want it. He had to come down and say, you have any need for a limousine? No. Well, I got this guy. He wanted this limousine for 15000 bucks. I've got him down to nine five. Do you need a limousine? <laughs> I say, no, I don't need a limousine. Will you get off the phone? <laughs> But he just kind of, he was really good at what he did. So he had fun doing that. I, that is such a great lesson for a kid. And it's funny because I, I sat down with you thinking about discussing all of the elements of social media and youth and the right age for kids to get phones. But now I need to know the right age when my kid can go start scalping tickets. <laughs> so it's, it's 10. I'll tell you something I did with Jordan that I thought was probably looking back the the smartest thing I ever did with him, he asked me one year, what do you want for Christmas? And um, I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, you're hard to buy for because come on. He said, let's face it. During the year, if you want something, you just get it or send somebody to get it. And you see, so you, there's nothing you don't have that you want. And I said, all right, here's the deal. I want you to give me one hour a week dedicated for me to talk about anything I want with you for an hour a week. He said, done. I said, no, no. I want you to sleep on this because I'm talking about 52 hours and I'm going to hold you to it. So you need to think about whether you really want to make that commitment or whether you want to go buy something or whatever. How old was he? Uh, uh, he was a sophomore. Okay. And Time he, is precious for a sophomore. Yes. And he came back the next day and said, all right, I've thought about it. I'll do it. And we probably did 38 hours, probably 40 hours, something like that. And he would miss or I would miss. But we did the vast majority of it. I didn't sit down like this and say, all right, school time. We would do it walking around the neighborhood or shooting baskets or something like that. But I spent that time talking to him about car insurance, how to change the oil, changing a tire on a car, uh, taxes on a house, uh, checking accounts, certificates of deposit, uh, property taxes that schools use, things that you just don't, kids don't know about anymore. Um, things he just didn't know about. I'd ask him questions like, why do you, why is it more expensive to insure a Corvette than a four-door Ford and that costs the same to buy? Well, I don't know. Well, then we talk about, well, this is faster. It's a two-seater. People race around more. And so we went through all of that, and he really learned a lot of things that he'll tell you today that he uses in life. That so was what? one of the best things I ever did. How did you come up with that? That's I don't brilliant. know. I just thought. I just that. That's what I say. I, need I to take notes right. I now. just thought about that one time and did it, and I didn't know how it would go. But really, after about eight or ten times, 
he started coming around saying, when are we going to do our hour? So I'm assuming when he got to the end of that year, you would still have these talks that mm-hmm. were just less formal yeah. in terms of keeping track. Uh, yeah. And it's, um, it, it's really interesting. It kind of changes your dynamic. It changes the way you – it's okay for him to ask you for information or advice. And um, I'm looking for something here I'll show you. And it you. seems like that's probably the perfect time because as you, you think about boys, which we're focusing on right now, and very selfishly, it's because I'm having a boy. Yeah. But I think about all the ages when I was growing up and the ages that I was the most impressionable and also maybe the most insecure and the most important moments in terms of am I going to become a man or shirk responsibility? And it was probably right around that age of 14, 15, where you're, you're still young, (laughs) your body's going through changes and you need to, to figure out the right priorities. And I am, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things I'm, have trepidation with is when they get to that age, how do you make sure that you have that quality time? And I, I bet most kids would be willing to offer you an hour a week. Oh yeah. And you see, this is from Monday of this week at, at two Oh six message. I got from him. I need some advice. Um, and that came in from, uh, Milan, Italy. Uh, he's over there and the question, I need some advice. So even today it's still, still that way. Well, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm excited to embark on the journey of, of parenthood mainly because it's always an experiment. And I, I do want to get back to one thing you said, and it was five people. You mentioned five people being incredibly influential as a parent. I think it's probably your job to be one of those five, hopefully yeah. in a positive way. Yeah. How much control or power do we have or should we have with those four other people and i'm talking about when it, when a kid is a kid not so much once once a you're an adult obviously you're going to m- be making a lot of choices but boy i'm glad how you do you prote- how do you how do you help them make the right choices in terms of who these influential figures are going to be for me it was sports as well now i wasn't gifted with division one athletic abilities, but I played sports all day, every day. And it was baseball, basketball, soccer, anything that had a ball, I was playing it. And I stayed out of trouble because of that. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I did pretty well in school and I I, I didn't do drugs <laughs> because I wanted to play sports. And it, it led me in the right path in terms of some of these influential people. But is there, a, is there a way or a method as a parent you can influence your kids so that they're they're picking the right five? Again, hopefully you're one of those five. And you, and well, I think there is. And I think it starts with this. Recognizing you're not going to be the only voice in your child's ear, so you need to make damn sure you're the best voice in your child's ear. Because it doesn't matter what stage of life – they're going to be getting a lot of information from a lot of different people. You need to make sure you're the best source of information, which means if you're judgmental 
and they can't tell you anything for fear of getting in trouble or fear of getting judged, then they're not going to talk to you about very much. If you're the principal, if Mm -hmm. you're the uh, authority figure, they're not going to come to you and you're going to be the last to know. And I always tell parents, you need to talk to your kids about things that don't matter so you're ready to talk to them about things that do matter. Because if you don't have, it's kind of like, you do in the ER, you know, when somebody comes in and you're not sure what's going on, you get a line open, right? Mm -hmm. You get an IV started. You don't know what you're going to put in it yet, but you get the line open. So you're ready. And that's exactly monitor. Exactly. Monitor. And that's exactly what you do with your kids. You talk about them about things. We talk with them about things that don't matter. So it doesn't feel strange when you need to talk to them about things that do matter. So you just have this open channel where you're talking to them. And because when it comes time for like girls and dating and sex and all of that, don't even begin to think you're going to be the only one talking to me about that. There's going to be a lot of those behind the gym conversations, those in the, in the locker room conversations you need to make sure you're the best source of information he's got. And you say, how do you control those other four people? Let me tell you, I think we make a real mistake by not being vigilant enough about who we turn our children over to. Teachers, coaches, Sunday school. uh, I mean, look at what's happening with the Boy Scouts of America right now. Uh, which they're going into bankruptcy. They've got all of these uh, sexual abuse charges mm-hmm. and stuff, and everybody just took for granted it's the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, how how much American apple pie could that be? It's the Boy Scouts. You, no, the Boy Scouts is a brand. Who's the guy? that you're going to let spend time with your child. What do you really know about that guy? People get on airplanes every day. They walk in and turn right. How many people actually look left and eyeball those pilots up there and see how he or she looks? Everybody doesn't have the same night before they get in that cockpit. When I get in there, I look left. I want to look, I want to make eye contact with these people and see, you know, did you, have you ever sleep? Walked, have you ever Did you guys sleep a, all right last night? <laughs> have you ever walked off a plane? <laughs> oh boy! Let's no, go. I haven't. But I do look and see who's flying this damn thing. I, I, when I'm driving, I will confess, I probably look in my rearview mirror half the time because yeah. I'm vigilant, making sure that everyone else is hopefully in the right lane. That they're not going to you know, smash into my rear. And and I think that's something I learned back to watching my father. Yeah. But you're right. You can, you can make one seemingly innocuous decision as a parent. And we recently on the doctors, we were talking with a number of the USA gymnastics members and what they went through. And you think you drop your kid off for gymnastics lesson. And 10 years later, you find out that your daughter is emotionally devastated from things that happened that you just assumed 
would never happen in that environment. So I mean, that's and it's a really good point. And you can't unring that bell. And how, how are you going to feel if? And this is this is one of the craziest things I, th I think we do is tell our kids. Now, I, th this is how I was raised. I was always told, "Now you mind adults. Now you're going to go up there, but now you you mind adults." I never told my kids that. I told my kids, "You think for yourself." And if an adult's telling you something that doesn't fit in your ear right, it it doesn't seem right. You tell them to kiss your ass. And if you get in, and if you're wrong, if it was an okay thing to do, and it was an okay person to tell you, I got your back. I'll cover you. And do not use that to be disrespectful or to get away with something, or you're going to have me to deal with. But we didn't tell our children. To mind adults. We said, think for yourself, because if you've got some adult telling, hey, get in the car, do this. To, no, I, I think it's I, I think it's bad decision for people to tell their children to mind adults, respect your adults and mind them. You should respect everyone, but you should think for yourself. And I think people, by using that value, have let their children get in a lot of bad situations because they were told that this is an adult. You, you mind adults and do what they tell you. So let, let's talk about current society and, and with kids in mind, but moving into adulthood. So you went through a transition in your life and, and you were a psychologist and at some point in time, and you don't have to go through the, the story if you don't want to, but you became Dr. Phil, who now uses the medium of TV, podcasts, social media to, to really help people think about their lives, mental health. And I want to ask you, and, and and I mean this because I found myself getting more cynical as of late. And maybe it's because <laughs> they say the happiness curve, the, the bottom is at 47.2. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm real close to that. And maybe that's part of it, but, but I've found myself getting more and more cynical and, and, Maybe it's part of being an ER doctor and you can't sweep things under the rug when, when you see that yeah. part of society. But how do you how do you stay positive and do you ever get sad or do you ever feel like you're overwhelmed? Because you're the one everyone turns to for advice and you cover so many heavy topics. And again, getting back to kids where in this world, it, it, you can't shield them from it anymore. As a kid, I was playing in the creek. I wasn't on social media. Right. So, so A, how do you protect yourself from, quite frankly, getting cynical and sad? And then in that same vein, how, how do we protect those that we love from becoming that way with the 24-hour news cycle? Well, that's a, that's a challenge, particularly with children. And I, I want to address it with kids, too. Um, you know, for me... Um, Compartmentalization is part of it. I mean, you really do have to put up boundaries and leave it here sometimes. But as cliche as it sounds, and this does sound like some motivational speaker cliche, but it really is not if, if you practice it this way. You can either approach what I do as spending your whole day dealing with problems or you can approach it as spending your whole day dealing with solutions. And it it's not just semantics. 
it's really the attitude of approach that you take to what you do. Because I do, I can't tell you how many letters that we get that finish with, Dr. Phil, you're my last hope. And I'm like, will somebody write me first? Will you please write me at the first sign of trouble? Don't wait until you've exhausted every other possible (laughs) avenue of help. And then when you're just about to fall off the cliff, okay, we'll write the bald guy. Okay, (laughs) everything is deteriorated to the point that, like, there's no hope. Okay, we got to write him. Thanks a lot. Uh, But I I really look at it as people ask me sometimes, do I think problems are as simple as I make them out to be? I don't think problems are simple at all. I think problems are very complex. They're often layered. They're often multifaceted. It's the solutions that are often very simple. You know, you can have a complex problem that involves parenting and finances and social media and all sorts of things. But the solution can be as simple as just don't do that anymore. Just unplug. If you're getting cyberbullied, unplug. Just unplug for 30 days. Um, and they say, well, I shouldn't have to. I didn't say what you should have to do. If you want to stop being cyberbullied, unplug your computer. Problem solved. And sometimes I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing the light bulb come on over people's heads when they go, wow, I can do that. Uh, people come in. You know, a woman that I saw yesterday has a young child, six-year-old daughter, and is pregnant seven months with a son, and her husband is a heroin addict and a dealer, and she asked—her question for me was, should I marry him? Um, Little Abner could answer this one. Lassie could answer this one. The answer is no, but she needed someone to give her permission to say, I'm out. I'm out, and I'm not back in until an independent professional tells me that you are recovered and have sustained a long period of sobriety with a program of support that makes you a reasonable risk, and until then, I'm out. And she needed somebody to give her permission to do that. And so I I focus on the fact that I unraveled that ball of yarn and gave her permission to do that. So I went home feeling good. It's a I was tired, but it's a good tired. You know, I I gave this woman a path Mm -hmm. out of this. And so I look at that and I worry about and I've been at this for 45 years. And when I first started out, and I'll bet you were the same way as a young doctor, I first started out and I was going to cure the world. And it wasn't very many years before I realized, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them float on their back. So I can just tell them (laughs) and then they got to do, they're either going to take the advice or they're not. And I realized I was laying at home awake, worrying. They were home fast asleep. I was worrying more about it than they were. Yeah. 
And so I realized you can't do that. You, what you got to do is you got to give people the advice. You got to give them the resources. You got to give them the help. Then they're either going to embrace it or they're not. And I, I had to accept that. I couldn't save the world. I could just tell them what I knew to tell them and go on. And we, this 24-hour news cycle and kids being exposed to it is a big issue. And I, I got a rude awakening one time, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It was right after 9-11. And all the planes were grounded. You remember they said right after they said, nobody's flying in America. And I was doing Oprah at the time. It was before Dr. Phil, the year before. And Oprah called and said, we've got to do a show on this. I've got the first lady coming and I want you to come. And we're going to address the children in America. And somehow or another, she got some dispensation for me to take a Learjet into Chicago and be there for the show. And we were talking to a group of young children, and it became apparent to me that these children didn't think two buildings were knocked down. They thought all of the buildings in America were knocked down. Why? Because they kept seeing it on every channel Mm -hmm. from different angles, and they didn't realize it was the same two buildings. They were watching it without a parent there to tell them what was going on. And as bad as it was that two buildings were knocked down, they thought the entire country's buildings were knocked down. And that's when I realized if when you've got these disasters, hurricanes, mm-hmm. whatever, you need to watch this with your children so you can answer questions, give them information, and limit the amount of exposure they have to it, or they can become overwhelmed by it. I mean, that that hit me like a ton of bricks, mm-hmm. realizing these kids thought all the buildings were knocked down. Laura Bush, we looked at each other and like, oh my God. And that was a rude awakening for me. Well, and it's harder to, getting back to compartmentalization, no matter how hard your your day is, it's harder to compartmentalize if when you go home, you're tuned in to the 24-hour news cycle. Yes. And I think the lesson there is to shut it off. And I've been guilty. I think before I had all of the technology at my fingertips, I would, I'd go work a shift in the ER. <clears throat> and you have to compartmentalize, right? When you're in the ER, you can't not showing emotion. I'm, I'm thinking about what I need to do to, to save someone's life. And back then I could go home and decompress though, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have a 24 hour newsfeed on my iPad or my iPhone. And I might go home and decompress a little bit, but, but nowadays I'm probably as guilty as the next person of, then I go home, I look at the headlines. What did I miss while I was at work? And then it's just more bad news. And then you go to bed and you know what? I wonder what's happened in the last two hours. Let me just check one more time. And then you're laying in bed and you're anxious and you're not sure if you're anxious from something that happened at work or just all the bad news on the newsfeed. And I I think it's a good reminder for all of us, you know, not just with kids, but we have to we have to shut it down sometimes. And let's face it, what you do, for example, frankly, is just not for everybody. I mean, you can be in the ER and during a shift, 
you may have your finger in a bullet hole to stop the bleeding and 15 minutes later telling someone uh, sitting in the hallway that their crash victim family member didn't make it. That's not for everybody. It's just not for everybody. It takes a certain kind of balance in personality and a certain ability to rise above the scenario but maintain compassion to handle those situations and then go home and play with your dog. That's not for everybody because the majority of people psychologically could not handle either one of those things and not be impacted for a month or more. And you might do two or three of those things per shift per day. And it's just not for everybody. It's just like there are other jobs that we wouldn't be suited to. It's just not everybody is suited to that. It's like everybody's not suited to be on television. Um, I mean, I take positions every day. People like some of them. Some people don't like some of them. And then they grade my paper every day and publish the grade. Um, so, you, I mean, you're out there in front of the world, and you're, that's not for everybody. If you have the need to be loved by strangers, this is not the job to do. Well, I want to ask you about that. And interestingly, being an ER doctor helped me when it came time to host the doctors. I had obviously never done anything like that, but in the back of my mind, <laughs> I kept thinking, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, nobody's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is downhill from what I was doing <laughs> yesterday. And, and it, it, you know, I remember like it was yesterday for the first year or two hosting the doctors, I would, because I commute, I would fly back home. And a lot of times I'd be in the ER 6am on Sunday morning. And that was my, ironically, my comfort zone. I actually, you know, I, at, at that point in time, I'd spent more time training to be an ER doctor than being on TV, but the TV part, yeah, it, it I don't want to say it came easier, but it was less stressful because of my background in the ER. But I, I want to ask you about sort of, I don't know how to ask this without sounding like everyone goes through this, but, but burnout when you have a tough job or a tough life or a tough circumstance, because a lot of us are built to sustain something for a certain period of time, right? You know, a difficult circumstance, maybe for a week or a month, you can, you can do that. But whether again, it's your job, a family situation and, and burnout, um, how do you manage burnout when you're doing something that is a necessity? You can't turn your back on it. And maybe this is again getting back to you're in your midlife and you've you've had this job and you're you're burnt out. You know you're burnt out, but you still have to pay the bills. You still have to get your kids their get food on their table. What's what's the best advice you can give in terms of? I'd love to be able to say, oh, you know what? Just quit your job, follow your passion. But how how can you compartmentalize that in a way where? You acknowledge the burnout, you acknowledge the need to do what you're doing to provide for your family, for instance, and still be happy. You know, like you said, it would be great if when we felt that burnout, we could all just 
pull up stakes and go fly freight in and out of Africa. It'd be great. Yeah, it'd be great, right? Wonderful. You know, just open cockpit, looking at the beautiful scenery. That would be great. But yet we've got kids and we've got a mortgage. And, we, and as you taught Jordan, <laughs> yeah. insurance. That's right. Taxes, bills. all of that. And, you know, it's to me, and, and everybody feels that. I, I've, I've felt it. And I, I even, I, I feel it on a regular basis some. So as a result, I've developed a rhythm to what I do. Like, for example, on Dr. Phil, we shoot three weeks on and then a week off because I've learned that after three weeks, I'm ready for a break. And I'm okay for three weeks, but at, at the end of that third week, I'm really ready mm -hmm. for a break. And if I did the fourth week, I wouldn't, I would be cheating the, the guest. I wouldn't be fresh and really all there. And so I've developed a rhythm and I manage it in part with that rhythm. And fortunately, I can do that. Whereas somebody that maybe works at a factory or somewhere, they can't do that. But I think what you can do and you have to discipline yourself to do this, is you, you have to create some balance in your life where you fill yourself back up where you're being drained in another channel. For example, I play tennis every day at 4.30. I have an appointment with myself, and... We're getting close. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> How long does it take you to get to the tennis court? <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. We, we, we have a few more minutes. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not letting you miss that appointment. No, but I, I do. I make an appointment with myself, and I have for 30 years. I make an appointment with myself, and it, it varies uh, where I was living, maybe in Dallas or here. I make an appointment myself at 4.30 or 5 that I'm going to be on the tennis court. And I... Like, you can go down and ask my staff here. I tell them, I'm going to get here at like 7.30 or 8. I'll shoot however long you want me to. You want me to shoot three hours, four hours, five, seven, eight? I don't care. But, but. come about 4 <laughs> o'clock, you're in my rearview mirror because I'm going home and I'm going to play tennis and fill myself back up. And I've got buddies I play with and – you know, we have a good time and we talk trash and, we, you know, we laugh and have a good time and play music and all of that. And then I go back in and have dinner and then spend a couple of hours polishing up the shows for the next day. And, and then I'm fine. I'm done for the evening. But I protect myself and I protect that as though it were a doctor's appointment that they were really counting on me to show up for. I protect that appointment with myself and I show up at that time. but and, and so I've structured it that way. And now maybe if you're not in business for yourself, you can't do that. But you can create me time where you fill yourself back up. Because if you just drag home and you're just all gray and worn out and you don't fill yourself back up, you've got to discipline yourself to take care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I, and I, and I really do commit in all of those categories. Well, and I think that... The beauty of that is you're not going home and filling yourself up by turning on 
your phone yeah. <laughs> and reading the news, which yeah. is what a lot of us do. All right. I, I will not make you miss your appointment, but I want to ask you, because this is obviously the, the doctor's podcast, health and wellness. Tennis is the way you fill up your bucket. What, what did you do when, I don't want to get mad at you, but I'm an ER doc. You're a big motorcycle rider and you even do wheelies and you, you had an injury. On, How did you- On a you, donor cycle, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is, um, <laughs> it happens. But how did you, how did you deal with the aftermath of that since you couldn't do things like play tennis? And I saw you and I could tell that you were, you were persevering, you were hosting the show, you were in pain, you were still working as best you could. You were delaying probably some of the treatments that you need to, to get what you had to do, you, to get it done. How did you get through that? And then I, I want to ask a quick follow-up and then we're going to get you on, on the way to your, your tennis game. Well, I was very upset with myself, uh, frankly, and I would love to ha have a great macho story, but I crashed my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> now, in my defense, <laughs> I have a really long driveway, <laughs> but I mean, I'd love to have the story about running through the woods, jumping over a hill. I crashed in my driveway, um, but... It's really frustrating when you hurt yourself doing something you do an hour a month and it takes away what you do 30 hours a month. And you think, what, what, what were you thinking? I mean, why, why are you doing this? And I, I, I used to race motocross all the time. I mean, in big races, organized multiple heat races and stuff. And I forgot that a few years had passed. Uh, you know, back <laughs> then you would, back then you would crash and, you know, maybe you'd have a handlebar sticking through your lungs or something and you'd shake, rub a little dirt on it. And by Monday, you'd be fine. I don't quite heal that fast anymore. Uh, so it takes a long time. And that was really a stupid thing to do. I, I had a dirt bike and a Harley and Robin, buried the keys in the backyard. I have no idea where. <laughs> That's why in my podcast studio, there's it's two- It's a good looking bike. There's and two it's a motorcycles over there. It. <laughs> yeah. It, they've now become props. Uh, so I, that was not a smart thing to do. And I I never got hurt on a street bike, which I used to say was the most dangerous thing of all. And I still think they are. Well, and it may have been ultimately been a blessing in disguise because- I, the only advice I will give as, as the ER doctor on this particular podcast episode is when, when pe people make a decision to do something, they have to consider the potential consequences and ask themselves, is it worth it? And if it is, if the benefit is worth the risk, then you do it. But, but a lot of people... Well, it was not. Yeah. In <laughs> retrospect, it was But wasn't. I will say but I have a, I have a lot of respect. I've... I've I've tried to ride motorcycles <laughs> and I quickly realized I was going to kill myself yeah. if I continued. So. I will give myself this, even though I was just in my driveway and I, I have some friends that are stuntmen here in Hollywood, really good ones. And we were all over there doing stuff and it was stupid. But even in my driveway, I had on Kevlar vest, jacket, elbows, gloves, knees, boots, everything. I was properly geared up, really good helmet. And you should see the scar on the helmet. It 
So I I was not out there being reckless without the proper gear. It was still stupid. We'll just leave well, it at that. Well, tr- true story, Dr. Phil. Really quickly, I have to tell the story because it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in the ER. Motorcyclist going down the interstate, road slippery, yet going way too fast, over 75 miles an hour. This was visualized by num- numerous people, completely wiped out into the median, apparently slid for 300 plus yards. Comes into the ER, obviously, level one trauma alert, the chaos of that. And I, I get next to him, and he's he's older. He's in his 60s, and I'm, I'm sitting there talking to him, and his eyes are open. I'm thinking, well, he has to have something really bad going on. But he was covered in head-to-toe co- head to with protective gear. Within three minutes, I had cleared him medically. He went from a level one trauma alert to let's give him some crackers and some water, and he walked out because he wore the right gear. And, and good for you. Good for you. Because if you weren't wearing that gear, who oh, knows what would have happened? Yeah, let me tell you. If I hadn't had that helmet on, but I mean, Kevlar with shoulder pads, the whole thing. So it makes a big difference. But I got no business being on motorcycles at this point. And CBS will happily tell you <laughs> they were not happy about that. Well, tennis is a better sport anyway. Yes. You get more exercise and it, and it maintains hand-eye coordination. And by the so. way, tennis, I looked it up just the other day, is the sport that adds number one in adding years to your life. And it's something like 15 years or something. And I don't know what's second. Maybe it's soccer, whatever. But I think it's because it's high intensity. You sprint around, stuff like that. Our listeners can look it up. But it is a good thing for you to do. And I play with a lot of really good guys. And it's good social. It's good release. So I have fun doing it. Well, and you know, the, the article came out showing that golf, people who play golf, live longer. Yeah. Are you still hitting the little white ball? I do. Not very well, but I do. Well, you've seen me play. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know that I don't hit it very well either. Yeah. But we're persistent. We are persistent. We do our best. Thank you for it having me. It's been an honor and a privilege. Really, thank Genuinely you. Genuinely appreciate it. And thanks for all the wonderful advice that, that you gave today you're, and, you're and really every day. You're really good at this. You might want to think about sticking with this. I will. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I will... And I mean this. Those words of advice as far as raising a son, I will use those. And so, well, can... hey, everyone out there listening, when you see a 10-year-old scalping <laughs> tickets, give yeah. him a break because he gets right. to keep whatever he says. That's right. I'll tell you this. Every year, I would tell myself, I wish I could freeze them right here. It is so good. And then the next year, it was better. It just gets better every year. You're going to love it. Well, I'm truly excited. Dr. Phil, thank you so much. Thank you, Travis. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening. Do not forget to subscribe and download. And tell your friends. I would love to build this community and continue to be all about authenticity, optimism, and hope. Uh, Looking forward to the next podcast. We'll see you soon. The Doctors Podcast with Travis Stork is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.